Hey, this is Henry Paul, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, and heavy metal blues music scene. Episode 107, we've got three very special guests. Ah, make it four. We've got Henry Paul of the band The Outlaws, who will be coming to the Pepsi Cola Roadhouse out in Burgettstown, PA. We've got Larry Rhino Reinhardt formerly of uh, bands such as Iron Butterfly. He's got a new solo mountain. He'll be on the show talking about it. And we also have Josh Green and Ramona Diaz, producers of a new movie called Don't Stop Believing Every Man's Journey, a movie about the life and times of Arnell Pina, who is the newest singer of Journey. Journey, as you know, will be playing out in Burgettstown uh, later in the month of August. So we wanted to talk to them. They're making a new documentary on Arnell's journey, basically from Manila, where he was at one point homeless, now to being the singer in one of the largest selling bands in the history of the recording industry. So we're going to talk to them about the movie that they're making as well. So without further ado, we're going to play a song from The Outlaws. This is uh, just a little taste of green grass and high tides. And then we're going to get into an interview that Eric conducted with Henry Paul. Uh, singer of the Outlaws. podcast we have henry paul from the outlaws the henry paul band and blackhawk how you doing today henry i'm fine eric how are you buddy great thank you very much for coming on the podcast we truly appreciate it well my pleasure my pleasure indeed pittsburgh is a, a city that's near and dear to my heart so it's great to have a moment to chat with you and your friends that's excellent we appreciate it well let's just dive right in here henry uh talk about your your musical career your your life and uh Mm-hmm. to see where it all takes us. Uh, what got you um, What got you started into music? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I know you moved around some, too. If you'd like to talk about that a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. that might give people an idea as to where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's see. I, I uh, graduated from high school in 1967. So at that point, you know, the music scene was pretty revolutionary in ways. The Doors were hugely popular, and Jimi Hendrix was about to, uh, you know, arrive on the scene. Sgt. Peppers had been recorded, and uh, Bob Dylan was coming off a very, you know, an influential and important sort of period in his life. And I I just uh, gravitated towards... Uh, uh, folk singers, uh, folk rock musical groups. Uh, Bob Dylan as a singer and songwriter in the middle 60s with uh, Bringing It All Back Home and uh, Highway 61 Revisited was uh, 
immensely influential. Uh, then bands like the Birds that covered his music were very uh, appealing to me. Of course, the Beatles and uh, and uh, and then bands like the Buffalo Springfield really were uh, very appealing to me. Bands that uh, sang mostly uh, harmony vocals. Uh, bands that played guitars, uh, the guitar-driven sort of jangly folk rock, for lack of a better definition. Uh, Stephen Stills was uh, enormously uh, appealing to me uh, in his tenure with the Buffalo Springfield. And to a lesser degree, I guess, bands like Moby Grape and uh, and then Quicksilver Messenger Service. Uh, Psychedelic-type music. Yeah, I, I was I was really a fan of the Doors. I mean, we, Canned Heat was really an interesting band to me, and I became friends with Alan Wilson. Actually, uh, moved to California in 1969. We were kind of like surfer guys, and uh, hmm. went and I, I took my acoustic guitar and moved to uh, Huntington Beach and went up to Laurel Canyon and hung around Venice Beach. Met Alan Wilson through a friend, and we hung around and kind of. Lifted and toted a little bit for canned heat as roadies, and uh, in sixty summer of '69, I guess it was August, I hitchhiked uh, from L.A. up to San Francisco and then across America to go to Woodstock and uh, met some interesting people along the road hitchhiking across America with my six-string Gibson acoustic. Uh, I uh, my parents come from uh, the upstate Catskill Mountain, uh, Woodstock, New York, uh, Kingston, Hurley area. And I uh, I uh, was living, actually, with my dad and uh, his family, you know, uh, with uh, his his wife, uh, second wife, Barbara. And, and one of our favorite pastimes, this was probably 60, 1965, 66 was trying to see Bob Dylan when he'd come into Kingston from Woodstock and he'd play pool at the uh, the Uptown Pool Hall in Kingston and uh, and so we were uh, uh, you know a very probably typical pop music fans in that teenage or you know adolescent period where music was very very important. Sure. Uh, I kind of I became a Gordon Lightfoot, an early Gordon Lightfoot fan as well, and I I started to sort of style myself after uh, him and uh, and Dylan to a certain extent, and started writing songs and performing in coffee houses, and uh, I moved back to Florida. Uh, kind of one day I sort of committed to the idea that I was going to make music my career, my life, and I had this idea. I'd been to New York many times and was very attracted to the Greenwich Village music scene and the historical sort of importance it represented. So I I moved to New York with my guitar and my whatever personal possessions. I didn't have much, but uh, rented an apartment down in uh, the village uh, right off Washington Square and enrolled in the new school of for social social research and bought a violin and bought a mandolin and 
had my acoustic guitar and started playing coffee houses and learning how to play different instruments and uh, studying music theory at New School and got a job at a real famous bookstore in in, uh, in the village, uh, the Strand, down on Broadway and met a number of interesting people. And sure. I got a call from uh, Don Ellis up at uh, Epic Records, a friend of mine that worked at the label, introduced me to the head of A&R at Epic at that time. That would be 1970 or 71, maybe. And I went up to Columbia, and I sat in his office with my box guitar and auditioned for him, and he liked what I did. It was odd, but interesting and, you know, different for sure. And so so he stuck me in the studio. We cut half a dozen sides, and he asked me, he said, well, Henry, would you be interested in going to Nashville? A lot of what you do sounds like it might be more at home in Nashville maybe than New York. And I said, well, I remember my response per Batum. It was, yeah, I'd be happy to move to Nashville as long as I could, you know, play and sing and maybe make a record and have a career. Uh, A friend of mine in Tampa called me and was putting together a showcase of a lot of Tampa musical personalities that had gotten out of Tampa and had, had, uh, you know, gone on to do something more significant, and I guess recording for Epic was was part of my uh, my illustrious, you know, uh, list of accomplishments. And so, sure, it's a big label. And bless you, and I, 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 we, I came back to Tampa. I put a a group together actually in New York, uh, some people that I met through other friends, and we. Went down to Tampa for a one-off and and did a show in front of probably two or three thousand people at a venue in Tampa and really got over and and I decided at that point that being in a band would be a fun thing to do and so uh, let's see I went back to New York and starved for a while longer things with that Epic were slow it didn't seem like it was going to happen and so he my friend invited me back to Tampa with my band and we 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 started playing. Uh, some dates in the area, colleges, and showcasing for, you know, the College Entertainment Network and recording and writing and and uh, uh, we went through a few personnel changes and the Outlaws were born from that group and uh, and the Outlaws played in Tampa. Oh, let's see, seventy one, seventy two, seventy three. By seventy four, we had developed a pretty significant local or regional following and we got an agent that took us out of town and started playing clubs in the southeast and midwest and got noticed by uh, a famous rock and roll band that we opened for and <laughs> uh, you know and uh, they went on to recommend their manager have a look and it all wound up with us signing with Clive Davis at Arista and the band that was instrumental in helping us be discovered was Leonard Skinner and right. Ronnie Van Zant turned out to be the kind of the catalyst to our uh, discovery. So we toured. We made a great new record for Arista in '75 and toured hard with Skinner and Tucker and Charlie Daniels and the Allman Brothers and the Doobie Brothers and hell the Who and the who else the Rolling Stones. And Pretty established ourselves. What's that? Pretty much everybody. Yeah, well, everybody, I guess, you know, whoever'd have us. And uh, 
And we started, you know, we became rock stars, I, you know, f- for lack of a better definition. But but it was, I made uh, what I consider to be the first three sort of uh, defining records with the uh, Outlaws. Uh, some differences in the group. I moved on, signed with Atlantic, made four records with Atlantic with the Henry Paul Band and continued to tour and develop my own sort of audience, sort of an offshoot of the Outlaws, and uh, and then uh, rejoined the group in the early 80s and somewhere around 85, Huey and I and the band recorded Soldier of Fortune, and by then the Southern Rock thing was sort of out of vogue, and we had a core audience that, or you know fan base out there, but we were out of the limelight from the standpoint of, uh, you know, uh, popularity. Sure. Uh, but we soldiered on through the, uh, through the eighties and, uh, I left yeah, the I band. The 80s and, was a pretty tough time for, you know, for bands like the Henry. Yeah. I mean, it had turned into, well, it's pop music, you know, I mean, it goes through so many different constant changes, but but I moved to Nashville. I struck out on my own again in '89 and formed a, the trio of Blackhawk in Nashville with Dave Robbins and uh, Van Stevenson. And weird as it may sound, I re-signed with Arista Clive and Tim Dubois signed the band to the label, and we had phenomenal success with that. I mean, we sold you know a couple, two and a half, three million albums on our first record, and Stuck next thing I know, huh? stuck with a winner <laughs> yeah you know it was like shoot i'm uh we're rolling and so yeah, that still is going on and uh i i came back to the outlaws with huey and monty and dave Dix and the surviving members of the original band and uh we put a revival tour together uh what we call it, it was a 30th annual reunion tour in 05 and then uh, I got kind of back into the Blackhawk business in earnest, and Huey passed away in '07, and yeah. with he and Billy and Frank gone, Monty called and said, "You know, hey, throw me a line over here, dude." <laughs> so I said, uh, "You know, we decided we wanted to uh, try and put the Outlaws back together and." And in so doing, you know, really my goal was to try and resurrect the uh, the original musical personality of the group, and to uh, and to try and you know write maybe the later chapters in the band's life in a more you know musically interesting and artistically. Uh, credible sort of way and that's where we are right now we've written some great new music we have a couple really exciting uh record projects uh in the works this year and uh and we're excited about you know really putting a very positive and very uh, uh significant uh artistic effort into uh writing the later chapters in the band's uh, life story yeah, that's definitely important. Now, you, your career, as evidenced by what you all you just said, you know, went through many phases. Um, 
you know, and this might not be a real fair question, but I mean, like, what's your, what was your favorite part of it, I guess, or, you know, you, right. can, say that, you can just say I like them all, too, but, uh, you know, what's sure, no, I mean, the most? Well, I mean, listen, if you start out with a dream and that dream becomes a reality, regardless of how much, how different it is and what you perceive it as being, I mean, signing with Arista the first time was an un believable experience sure you know and that so that probably stands very very tall on the landscape of my accomplishments uh getting a deal with the henry paul band and learning how to you know run a band and become more involved in the business of music and 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 being you know in a more responsible position within a group rather than just an equal member was a very, very uh, positive experience for me. Sure. Uh, I have to say that re-signing with Arista in 92 and getting that really big break at that point in my life was as big as anything. It, it looms as large as my first record with Arista. But So, you know, I mean, those bright spots, for me, those three bright spots are very, very, very close to equally important, and uh, and uh, those are you know accomplishments that I'm very equally proud of. Sure, certainly. Now, what type of gear do you like to play? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a rhythm guitar player. I'm a pretty dang good player, but I use a very simple sort of electric guitar rig. I use a uh, a Fender DeVille 212. It's not a particularly big amp by arena rock standards, but it's a very loud amp. <laughs> sure. And it sits about five or six feet behind me, so I have no trouble hearing it. Uh, Chris Anderson and Billy play through 412 cabinets. The two lead guitar players play through 412 cabinets, and they play through different amplification setups. It's really hard for me to keep up because they're constantly, you know, messing with it. But uh, uh, the bass player plays through a rather modest bass amp, and uh, Dave Robbins uh, plays, you know, a a late model Yamaha digital piano and and B3. Mm -hmm. Uh, Monty plays... Nice set of uh the hell is he playing now? Gosh, I, I wanna say he's playing I don't know, either Slingerland or Ludwig, but he but everybody is uh on in ears monitors, the more recent monitor technology is uh is all what we're doing. And so uh, we have a direct monitor feed into our individual ears and we don't have to uh you know fight the stage volume quite so much or fight the you know the monitors the old style monitors at your feet squealing and kicking back and right so it's a pretty clean I mean the stage is clean we have uh four mic stands across the front and uh a drum kit on a riser and a keyboard player on a riser in the back and and the Blackhawk configuration is similar, a little different setup, but uh a little more spare. 
Yeah, I mean, it features Dave Robbins and myself as the original singers and 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 the band, and and Randy, our bass player, is just a very delightful and gifted high harmony singer. So it features our vocals. The Blackhawk musical evening is a little bit more of an inside job. The uh, Outlaws musical presentation is more of a is more of a prize fight. <laughs> it's more of a slugfest, you know, more sure. a lot more rock and roll and energy and volume and sure. It's a very very demanding 2 plus hours of of music. Oh yeah. Yeah, that I'm I'm sure it is. Yeah, now you're coming to uh the Pepsi Roadhouse in uh, Burgettstown on May 27th. So uh we're very much looking forward to have you here. Uh, will you do some uh, some Blackhawk and uh, some Blackhawk material and Henry Paul material too, or do you just keep it all outlaws? I do. I keep it all, all the outlaws. I, I I usually play Grey Ghost and So Long, two of the more recognizable songs from the Henry Paul band that mm-hmm. fit sure. the musical genre of the outlaws. But no, I there's 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 a world of difference in the two groups musically. So when I come to do an outlaw show, I specifically key in on what we consider to be, you know, important songs from the band's past. And also we have a a great collection of new music uh, for a new album we've got in the show and are adding new things to the show. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I mean, we've been working hard uh, putting a new album together and, We've got some very exciting new musical projects coming probably first of next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, we're looking forward to hearing that, too. Now, on this tour, uh, where are you at in the in the tour? I'm assuming it probably goes over the summer and winds up in the fall, sort of? You know, Eric, it goes all year long. I mean, uh, we're busy booking next year. You know, I mean, it, it's it's just our job. It's not like... I don't know, I perceive in the old days if somebody like the Eagles released a record and they would go out and tour for, you know, 18 months behind a new album and then they'd go back to their Hollywood Hills homes and do whatever they do when they're not working. We work constantly. We work 70, 80 plus shows a year. So every month, every month the bus wheels are turning and and that's how we make a living. Sure, yeah, you got to do what it takes. Yeah, that's yeah, it's uh, definitely an aggressive touring schedule. Well, it's not. It's not. You know, it's the perception of our job and the compensation involved, and all of the the you know, there's there's a great deal of uh, uh, perception issues that are erroneous. You know, I. We work hard for a living. We just we just make a living. I mean, we we you know nobody's getting rich, and there are no filthy rich. And it, it's not like Lady Gaga, you know, or no. you know these Britney Spears kind of stories where there's just they have stupid money and right. It's ri- ridiculous. I mean, we're just a very professional and you know and. uh and dedicated musical group that likes to go out and play and make a living doing it, and that's pretty much what we do. I mean, there's not a lot of money on the table usually at night. There's enough money to keep the bus wheels. I mean, we travel in a 
style that, you know, is important from the standpoint of being able to do what we do. But other than that, I mean, we don't, we just love our job and, and everybody's committed to one another from the standpoint of, of our personnel issues and we just have a great time playing. Right, it's not just about the money. Yeah, and you yeah. can tell you can tell too, you know, just you know, how you sound and what you do. Right. There's no I mean the big rock star thing, I don't I don't know. I you know, I was, I saw Bob Seegers back on the road this year and and I, I'm a fan. He 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 had that that ad with General Motors like a rock that yeah, ran for trucks, yeah. And I bet that guy made probably fifteen million dollars, you know, just on that that ad. Sure, and you're like, why can't it be me, right? Well, not that so much because I really don't think in those terms. But what I what I'm trying to say is that we've never been, you know, gifted with that kind of exposure. I mean, the Outlaws are a very a very very accomplished musical group with a very loyal sort of cult sure fan base but uh but we're just uh we're just a uh, kind of a blue collar you know middle income ass whipping and uh and, and you know if if we ever drop the ball and let our game slip then we we won't have a job at all <laughs> right no one will want to see you we have anything. to play at a high level otherwise there will be no job so we're very uh, uh, we're very uh, conscientious of our of our effort but uh, but it's not a it's not a uh, you know a a big money gig but it's fun it's a great job sure sure it sounds like it well henry i want to thank you for coming on the podcast i totally appreciate uh talking to you it was, it was very enjoyable well good deal and uh have yourself a great uh day and uh spread the mirth in the uh in the berg for me okay i will do that thank you all right buddy see ya REO Speedwagon celebrates the 30th anniversary of the release of their iconic High Infidelity album. September 18th, 7.30 at Trim Total Media Amphitheater at Station Square. All those legendary hits from High Infidelity and more. Reserve seats are on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations, Ticketmaster.com or by calling 1-800-745-3000. Presented by Drusky Entertainment and Pittsburgh Concert Group. All right, that was Henry Paul of the Great Outlaw Southern Rock Legends. You can see them out at uh, Burgerstown at the uh, Pepsi Roadhouse. Uh, if you Google Pepsi Roadhouse, uh, it is the only one in the country. Great place to see a venue. You're not very far from the stage at any point, and uh, you get a meal with your ticket price. So great chance to see those guys out there. Now we're going to turn our attention to a upcoming movie that is being made. Uh, as Pulled by our listeners on uh, Facebook recently, uh, the show that people are most interested in seeing this summer is Journey, uh, which struck me as uh, interesting and, and awesome indeed. I uh, plan on making it out to Burgettstown myself to see that show, and I wasn't sure what fans' reactions uh, is still to this day about Steve Perry not being in the band. Um, as many of you know, he's been out of the band now since uh, somewhere in the mid-1990s. Uh, they did a uh, kind of a reunion album where they got sort of the uh, quintessential band back together, and then Steve Perry uh, went into retirement. 
they subsequently got Steve Augeri, Jeff Scott Soto uh, to take vocal duties, and uh, most recently, uh, with the release of Revelations, got Arnel uh, Pina on uh, vocals. So he's got kind of an interesting backstory. And uh, Ramona Diaz, who has uh, worked on many documentaries in the past, specifically involving uh, Manila and the Philippines, uh, has started a project to make a documentary about Arnell's life story. So um, we are going to take a moment to talk to uh, Ramona Diaz and also Josh Green. Uh, two people are involved in the project. They are in the middle of trying to raise uh, capital to get the editing of the movie made. Uh, just to give you a little backstory, this is not a movie that is being made by Journey themselves. There's no uh, Columbia Records or Sony or uh, Walmart behind this picture. This is strictly an independent film. Uh, so you're going to get a much more uh, honest look, I believe, at, at what is going on in the band and how this search went. So they are actually doing a um, campaign, which we'll speak about in the interview, to help raise money. Uh, it gives you a chance to uh, purchase some great items, uh, get your name involved with the film, which is a trend I'm starting to see more and more in bands. It, it is so expensive to make albums and movies that a lot of companies uh, can't afford to make all the great music. So I've seen this with Metallica. This is also this movie where they're asking fans to donate some money in advance. In exchange, you can get your name uh, in this case, as far as into the credits of the movie. So uh, there's a lot of great opportunities for Journey fans out there to get involved with the picture. Uh, so without further ado, I give you Josh Green and Ramona Diaz of the movie Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey. All right, folks, with great pleasure, I welcome to the show Ramona Diaz and Josh Green of the uh, involved with the motion picture Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey. How are you doing today, guys? Excellent. Great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us. No problem. Hey, before we get started on, on the Don't Stop Believing project, um, I'd like to get a little bit of background from each of you um, as to what your careers have been up to this point as it relates to the picture. Um, Ramona, do you want to start and kind of give us your background on what, what it is you do? Yeah, well, I'm a documentary filmmaker. This is what I do with my life. And before um, this film, I just finished one other film, actually, and it's about Filipino teachers teaching here in Baltimore City. And before that, I made a, a big film about Imelda Marcos, the former first lady of the Philippines. So there is a theme running here. I do films about um, uh, people from the Philippines because I've, you know, I'm from there originally. So uh, and to make money, I'm, I also direct commercials because okay. uh, films like Journey are like they're passion projects, you know. But they don't yeah. necessarily pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, that I can understand. Uh, you stole my next question. With, with I noticed in, in your bio, almost every movie that I, I saw there, wrote, you know, was related to the Philippines, and, and uh, so you were from the Philippines originally. Yes. Yes. Okay. And That's Josh, not to say that I'll only make films about the Philippines, you know. Oh, but certainly. right now, I'm sort of, uh, you know, doing that mm -hmm. th that streak streak of Filipino films. Okay, and Josh, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do for sure, your company? Sure. Yeah, well, for the last 10 years, I've been in a company called Emerging Pictures and mostly working 
um, not as a director, but on the, the sales and distribution side of the independent film business. So uh, much like Ramona, we're both kind of gluttons for punishment, working on a lot of documentaries, which uh, are amazing, amazing films, but just very difficult to kind of uh, gather an audience and raise financing and get them to the world. Um, but yeah, mostly, you know, I've acted kind of in an agent capacity for a lot of independent films, kind of selling them to theatrical distributors and television networks and video companies and now digital to digital platforms. So um, on the agency side of things and then releasing independent films in theaters. Um, and just more recently, I've actually started ramping up producing efforts. So I started a production company called Game 7 Films. And uh, I produced another doc called Kasim the Dream that was a, a boxing story that came out a few years ago. And now working on uh, this Journey film, obviously, with Ramona. I have a, another music film on the Sugar Hill Gang that hopefully will be coming out within the next year and a couple bigger films in development. So I've worked in independent film mostly, uh, again, the last decade. Excellent. Well, that, that kind of leads me to, to where your roads intersect with uh, Don't Stop Believe in Every Man's Journey, which is the story of of how Arnell came to fill the vocal duties for Journey. Um, Ramona, do you want to talk a little bit about how how the project originated? What kind of sparked the idea? Well, um, I, I got an email about, uh, I guess that was 2007, about Arnell joining the band, Journey. And actually it was an email from the um, consul who had given him his visa in the American mm -hmm. Embassy in the Philippines. And it's a really, really funny email about how Arnell had to sing for his visa. He actually, I think, sang Wheel in the Sky because they, wouldn't, they couldn't believe him because the reason he was coming here to the U.S. was to audition for the band Journey. I mean, right. imagine telling a, a, um, a consul that. They, could, they, wouldn't, they couldn't believe him, but they said, wow, that's such an original story that, you know, we're going to take a chance. We're going to give you a visa, but first sing for yeah. us. And, she did, and he did. He sang Wheel in the Sky. They, yeah, they, they gave him his visa, and you know, of course the rest is history. So I read that email, so funny, and I said, oh, my God, i got to make this film. You know, I'm like, do I really, uh, this is going to be a difficult film to make. So one thing led to another. My, um, my, man, uh, my um, manager called their manager, and, um, you know, one thing led to another. Arnell loved the idea of making a documentary, and so we were invited to one of their rehearsals to film a very short 10-minute sample. Okay. And so we did that. We cut that. We sent it to them, and they said, oh, great. Yes, there is a story here, so come on board. And so we went on tour with them in 2008. So you basically started during the, the, the kind of pre-tour rehearsals for what was the Revelation tour, if I'm not mistaken? Correct, yes. Okay. And do you want to just give us, you know, without giving the movie away, um, just kind of a brief story on Arnell's background? I'm sorry, Arnell's what? Arnell's background, like kind of where he came from in the Philippines. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. Arnell is really, is, you know, he, when, when he uh, was auditioning for Journey, or right before auditioning for Journey, he was at the end of his rope because it had been 25 years trying to make it big in the Philippines. Right. And um, he was unsuccessful. And he was, and he, he says, he will say in the film, that he was really just about to give up when he got this email from Neil. And before okay. that, and he was also, he lived on the streets, Arnell did. He was, um, he came from poverty. I mean, true uh, poverty, living on the streets at age 14 and trying to fend for himself. So that's, uh, that's his background. 
He wasn't even yeah. famous in the Philippines. He was performing in marginalized band, you know, bars in the Philippines. Okay, so he kind of went literally from rags to, you know, you know, to riches. I mean, obviously, he's been with the band a few years now, and this, uh, they're getting ready to release Eclipse, which will be the follow-up to his first album. But um, was was English, well, I guess one of the questions, was he pretty fluent in English prior to coming to the United States? Um, yes, I mean, he could understand perfectly well uh, English. Okay. But harder, I mean, he had a more difficult time um, articulating himself. Okay. Much better now. It's been two years. So if you see, you know, when you watch him, especially that first tour, he progressively did his own spiels, you know, in the concert. Yeah. Because at the beginning, he wouldn't. But you could yeah. see him gain his confidence. You could see him really, really something clicked, and he was able to do it. So it's it's much better now, and he does it all, I think. Let me let me ask this. Um, the DVD that they released from that tour, the Live in Manila, which I believe you guys did some footage on, um, where, how far into that tour was that shot? I mean, for those in the United States who may not know, just to get an idea, you know, of how he progressed as a vocalist. Um, that happened beginning of 2009. Okay. So the tour, his very first concert with Journey was actually in Chile in 2008. The okay. very the first, first performance. The first clips that I saw were those, those in Chile, yeah. Yeah. So that was in early 2008, and then they went on tour summer of 2008, and okay. the Manila concert happened in 2009. Okay. So he had a chance to kind of to get his feet underneath him with the band and then it become a little bit tighter of a unit. Did you find, um, I, don't, I obviously haven't seen your film yet, but uh, in talking to, to people, fans of the bands and things like that, were, were a lot of the fans pro or, or were people a little bit on the fence um, because of the I fact he was replacing you know, Steve Perry, obviously? Right. I think all of them were, I mean, at least the fans he spoke to. And this was his very first concert tour with them, so they were all going to give him a chance. Okay. Of course, a lot of them are Perry fans, will always be Perry fans, you know? Yeah. But they're also Journey fans. They love the music. Yeah. So they can't help themselves but be there when they come calling, you know, when they're in town. Yeah. They find themselves yeah. buying tickets and going. And every fan we spoke to was willing to, you know, give him a chance. It's like, yeah. well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what he, um, what he does. Talk to us yeah, later. I, and after, inevitably, after the concert, we'd talk to them, and they'd be like, wow. Yeah, he, he yeah. won them over, you know, yeah. with, with yeah. his talent, with his humbleness, with his, you know, with his desire and enthusiasm for the music and for their history. And I think the, the movie kind of intimately chronicles that process in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And, and he says it. himself, you know, Arnell also says himself always that he is also a Perry fan. I mean, yeah. he looked up to these guys growing up. Yeah. <laughs> In the Philippines, so to him, they're all like, you know, rock gods, and he's like joining them. And that includes Steve Perry, of course. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I, probably everyone owes a debt of gratitude to Steve Algieri for kind of being the guy who first tried to fill those shoes. Um, right. Who could kind of deflect some of that. And I, sure. my hat was off to Steve Algieri because, uh, you know, I don't think he necessarily mimicked 
uh, Steve Perry, but he was a phenomenal singer in his own right, and obviously Jeff Scott Soto, um, took, you know, took some time in that role as well. But um, the thing that I thought Arnell, to me, brought to the band was an incredible level of energy on stage. Yeah. You know, to take nothing away from even Steve Perry, I think Arnell's stage presence, at least in the Manila footage, was, was unbelievable. It's like a human dynamo on stage. Yes, and he and he sort of uh, retained that energy all throughout the '08 tour. Mm-hmm. From what you know, and um, I think the genesis of that kind of energy and being all around the stage was uh, the show in Chile because he started that way. And he, in the film, he tells a really amazing story of how he felt before that Chile concert. You know. I mean, the way he tells it, it's incomparable. you got to hear him tell the story. But um, but a lot of that was nervous energy, just jumping around, and then he found that it worked. Yeah. So that's how it all came about. And, of course, he stoned that down a little bit because you can't jump around constantly and <laughs> I, I still sing those power ballads, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, as a singer, he's got to be able to breathe. Right, yeah. management exactly. was a little worried he'd hurt himself, but uh, he, yeah. he's you know he's been able to maintain his you know his style on stage, which is amazing. And I think you see you know the movie again really does a great job of or will do a great job of this. But you see him off stage and kind of again we got this very intimate access to him and everything he was going through and this kind of you know you, he's this very humble personality that you really feel like he's every man. But then he goes on stage and he is a rock star. You know, it's just kind of different yeah. persona takes over. And it's really the dichotomy is really a fascinating kind of, um, you know, portrait, which you guys will all see. But uh, it was fun kind of be witnessing that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, Josh, how did how did Emerging Pictures get involved? Or uh, how does the relationship between, for those of us sure. not in the film industry, how does the relationship between the director and what your company does? I mean, did yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, this was, it's very easy, and it happens in different ways depending on the situation. And just to clarify, Emerging really is not uh, formally involved as an entity. It's really me through my production company now that's working okay. on the film. Um, but uh, how I got involved, Ramona and I had a very close mutual friend who's a Filipino gentleman um, who's been in the film business and distribution for, for decades. And he happened, I happened to be at brunch with him one day, and he just kind of casually just mentioned the story. It had nothing to do with a movie or anything, um, but just kind of mentioned that, hey, did you hear about the new Filipino who's leading Journey? And certainly I grew up with Journey and had always been a big fan. Um, and so he mentioned to me that there were some clips on YouTube or something, and I remember just one random kind of Saturday afternoon uh, when I was bored, just jumping on the Internet, and um, I looked at those clips from the Chile concert of him singing some of the songs, and I actually, I was floored. I mean, it was just, you know, you saw this big, first of all, there was the talent, and then seeing this, this you know, guy on stage with all that energy, with that voice, who's Filipino, who was just smiling ear to ear, and you could really just, you, you could see the essence that this was somebody living out a dream, you know? Yeah. And I remember watching one interview also that he was doing on YouTube um, that was mostly in Tagalog, um, but but some English, and he, I remember he something stuck out to me. He said something to the effect that you have to sleep to dream, and I'm still dreaming, and I can't believe this. And he was just this kid in a candy store, and I, I was just, I, I knew there was a movie in it, um, and wanted to see more to this backstory. And so I immediately called my friend Vincent, again Ramona's friend also, and he was like, "Well, funny timing that you should mention that that, that you know that you want to you know explore a movie for this." My close friend Ramona, who's a director, you know, had the same idea and just contacted the band, and I should put the two of you together. 
And next thing I knew, Ramona and I were, were kind of on the phone and email, just kind of hatching out our visions for what this movie could be and our various relationships and, and you know, strategies for what we could do together. And uh, next thing you know, we had a deal and we were on this ride together. And that was about three years ago. So um, it, it kind of came together in a, in a fateful way, but it's, uh, it's been an amazing experience. And we're all, you know, we're, we're getting obviously closer to the finish line, which is why we really need the fan support. I know you'll get into this crowdfunding thing that we're doing um, <laughs> because we're at a critical stage to kind of finish this movie. But we're really, you know, again, we were with the band in Arnell during this very critical time for the new chapter of Journey. And it's a celebration of what Journey's been through, what Arnell's been through. They're coming together. And, and just, again, this intimate portrait of what happened. You know, with all that, you know, pressure and all the expectations and, and you know, Arnell's backstory and the rags to riches and, and we watch what unfolds. Um, right. And so we're, we're excited to finally get this out and we're, we're hoping that can happen within the next, you know, year or so. Yeah, yeah and it's just, also, I'm sorry, I'm it, it, yeah, it's, a, it's a rags to riches story but with a very modern twist because, you know, they found him through YouTube. So it's all this technology, you know. Yeah. It's very modern. It's very now. It's, it, it also talks about fame in, you know what, in the 21st century, how you can get suddenly get discovered and you don't even have to be in the country. You know, you can be like so far away and they see you. It's, it's pretty amazing. It, it is. And, and it's, it's, I think, very, very interesting to see. I mean, there's certainly been situations like this in the past where kind of unknowns have stepped into bands, but an unknown from literally half a, a continent mm-hmm. or half a world away who, you know, put the video on YouTube, and, and everybody and their brother puts videos on YouTube, but to think, you really never think, oh, who's on the other end watching this? You know? Right. <laughs> you know, you stick, you can stick, I mean, I know from my own experience, I've stuck some kind of goofy things on YouTube, and you look, in the next day, 800 people have watched it. Right. You yeah. know, and you think about, you know, shows like Rockstar, Supernova, and American Idol, where people are kind of, going out of their way to be famous, and here's a guy that, you know, this just kind of fell in his lap, which is an excellent story. But Josh, you alluded to something that that is really one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you guys and give you a chance to, to spread the word about the movie, because this, this and if I'm wrong, correct me, this is not a Journey-funded movie, this is not a major motion picture or an MTV-funded project, this is more of a grassroots project. Um, and that was one of the things that, that struck me, was that you guys are really in need of people's help to get the movie made. And you guys are, you've got it all shot now and you're in the editing phase, is that correct? Exactly. We're, we've started the post-production in, in editing phases too, but yes, the movie is essentially entirely shot. Okay. Yeah. So what what is it you need from people, obviously, um, capital, but you want to talk a little bit about what, what you guys have set up for people to help out? Sure. Yeah, and just to, to reiterate your point, um, John, which is that, yeah, this, this is an independent film. This is not, um, you know, a Journey-sponsored kind of, uh, you know, major motion picture. And, and you know, it, it has to be that way because we want the movie to, to play film festivals around the world, and we want it to, to reach the widest possible audience and, and to really to, to paint kind of an objective portrait of what happened. So it's, it's uh, you know, it is an independent film, and with independent films, um, you know, they are risky, and the, a lot of the traditional kind of financiers and distributors, um, you know, want to see, you know, because you don't have big actors and, you know, and, and the whole nine yards, lots of money to work with, they want to actually see the movie almost completed before they're willing to actually finance it, which is uh, sure. which is kind of ironic, but uh, <laughs> but it's just, you know, That's you're kind funny. of forced making an independent film, whether it's about Journey or anything else, to really, you know, pour your heart and your soul and your money and your time and just, just you know, make the case and really just show what mm-hmm. you have. Um, so, you know, what we're doing is something really 
um, it's kind of become an innovative uh, you know, process flow that a lot of independent films, and it's extended to other industries, music and other now, um, but it's called this crowdfunding platform, where essentially what right. you do is you reach out to fans and you um, ask for contributions that would actually, you know, help to finance these projects. And in exchange, you, you know, give perks, you know, these VIP perks, behind-the-scenes information, stills, early peeks at trailers and footage, um, autographed things if there are, you know, stars or, or you know, talent in the, in the movie. Um, you know, so there's all sorts of various, you know, producer. I mean, we're, we're seeking contributions in exchange for producer credits on this movie, which is actually quite amazing. So it's really, it's yeah. for us, it's really, you know, it wasn't like, let's, we just need money and, you know, we, we're going to, you know, beg for fan, to fans to give us money. It's really quite the opposite. I mean, it's kind of, you know, an opportunity for us to really interact with our fans, to kind of give something back to them, to, to work together on getting this movie out. I mean, this is a movie for the fans, made by fans. You know, so it was a chance for us um, really to kind of get to know our fans and to, to create that early kind of marketing infrastructure for the movie and get people excited about it and let people be a part of it. And, you know, but yes, there is there is a clear need kind of at the heart of it. And that's uh, that's, you know, uh, money to help finish this project and get it out to an audience base. So um, so the way it works, there's a crowdfunding um, platform called Indiegogo, um, where essentially you can you know log in and you can find our project. And the best way to find our project, I think, was probably to go to our film website, um, which is www.everymansjourney.com. And then there'll be a big button in the top left-hand corner that you can actually go to Indiegogo, and you can go right to our page um, and see what all the perks are. And you can give – I mean, we want – you know, any dollar amounts are, are, you know, are great, whether $10, $20, and it ratchets up from there. But anything is very, very helpful to us, and it's very easy. You can pay through PayPal or through credit card or debit card or something. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the basic structure that we've set up. And we're we, – you know, we have a Facebook kind of profile now. We have a fan page and a friend page, and we have thousands of people that have visited us on our website and through our social media platform and through Twitter and how you found us, John. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's starting to build a lot of momentum. We're starting to get kind of a lot of things from press, and, you know, we're really building some early momentum about the movie, but we need to finish the movie, which is the, the important point. So uh, anything that the fans can do to help the cause uh, would be amazing and appreciated, and we look forward to kind of working with people on it. Yeah. yeah, and we also have to finish it like in a timely fashion because, as you know, they're touring this summer, and there's a new yeah. CD. So we really are re really pushing to finish by by September or October. So we we sort of you know we're on this wave of like the journey year, CD tour yeah. and the movie. Yeah, let their the press that they're going to be doing, and the publicity and things like that that they're going to exactly. be doing anyway, help you guys, Cam Wong. And you know, I kind of equate this this, this concept of, of uh, these type of projects where you're looking for listener or viewer funded a lot to the model of like public television, you know, where you know, right. there's exactly. a movie you want to see, you know, you give a couple bucks it's now. Demand it. Yep. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna ensure that people are gonna make the kind of movie you want to see, which is which is great. I mean it's it's certainly better than watching you know, or, you know, movies that people don't care about. I mean here's a chance for me, like I said to you guys before we started the interview Huge fan of, of music documentaries. Uh, you know, Sam Dunn could make a movie about anything, and I'm going to watch it now um, because he's made such great music documentaries in the past. And, you know, he got his start kind of in the same vein. Um, so here's a chance, you know, for for a couple bucks out of my pocket to help you guys make a project that you know I can watch again and again for years. So 
you know, certainly you had mentioned on everymansjourney.com, you can't miss the link at the very top. Yeah. Uh, and I know the link has a, a kind of a, a clip of the movie to give you a flavor for what it's exactly. about. Um, anybody who's not familiar with Arnell, um, what better place than YouTube to check him out? And also uh, there's some clips in the trailer as well. Um, so you guys, are, like you said, you're looking for a 2011 finish the picture. And then um, do you anticipate this going into like film festivals first or then like kind of a DVD or limited theatrical release or what? what? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely probably going to start with the film festival route just because it's a great way to start the early buzz and momentum as far as getting, you know, an early sneak peek to press, to, to you know, to film distributors who might then, you know, uh, license the movie and to, to launch in various platforms, um, an early sneak peek to audiences. So that's really become kind of the de facto way to launch independent films to really build a profile uh, before a commercial release. But um, you nailed it. I mean, the, the, the goal here is really a, a theatrical campaign. I mean, we we think we have, I mean, documentaries are a very specific kind of branding of program, but we really think we have kind of a, a you know, a crossover vehicle that, that not only will appear to, you know, to documentary fans, because you do have a really intimate kind of inspiring character, you know, story there, but something that's going to appeal across the board. I mean, obviously, as you know, jur- I mean, there's, there's Journey fans. Everybody knows the music, whether you even, you know, whether you're a younger generation and don't even know really it's Journey or not, everybody knows Don't Stop Believing and those, and, you know, the anthemic kind of nature of those songs um and you know so there's our nail fans there's the asian filipino communities um we really feel it's a movie for everybody you know again and, and i think uh, the goal is going to be to to have a you know a theatrical campaign of some sort and then certainly the movie will ultimately be on television and on you know dvd and on the vod and and they have a huge you know following overseas as well so we're excited to be building kind of a global platform for this film so uh yeah, I mean, obviously the fans can support this and help us get to the finish line to get it out there, uh, but we're excited about about what we have, and, and Ramona's really has an amazing vision with it, and uh, you know, it's uh, we think it has a broad audience. Well, wonderful, guys. I want to thank uh, you, Ramona and Josh, for coming on the show today and giving us the information again. It's Every Man's Journey, the film. Don't stop believing Every Man's Journey, and uh, thank you guys for taking the time to come on the show. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, and thanks to all the fans for their supportive journey and for the movie, and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody at the movies. Social Distortion, live, May 11th, 7 o'clock doors, stage AE. Social Distortion, with special guests Chuck Reagan and Sharks. Social distortion. May 11th, 7 o'clock doors, stage AE. Social distortion with special guests Chuck Reagan and Sharks. Get tickets now at all Ticketmaster locations. Charge by phone at 800-745-3000 or online at Ticketmaster.com. For more information, visit PromoWestLive.com. Pick up Social Distortion's new album, Hard Times and Nursery Rhymes, in stores now on Epitaph Records. Social Distortion, brought to you by Promo West, North Shore. Seen the bones in the sand 
you wait around here too long, this wind could bury a man. I'm no waiter. Well, patience to me is unknown. Well, I've struck the rock for water too many times already.
All right, the song you heard right there from the band Walker and the Rebellion. That's a song called Heart of the Unrest. If you like that song, they're a band out of the Pittsburgh area. You can go to ironcityrocks.com forward slash podcast. You'll find a link to them, uh, to their uh, Sonic Bids website. You can get all the information about them. And also another Pittsburgh band we're going to play for you right now called Maha Jibby Blues. This is a song called Little Man. Again, you can go to ironcityrocks.com and get a link over to their site as well. So here's Little Man.
All right, we're definitely going into extra ratings today. We've uh, had some great guests on the show so far. We want to thank uh, Henry Paul from The Outlaws and also Ramona Diaz and Josh Green with the picture Don't Stop Believing Every Man's Journey. want to invite you to head over to ironcityrocks.com. We've got a contest to give away a picture, pair of tickets to see Motley Crue and Poison at Stage AE. Also a pair of tickets to see The Monkees at Stage AE. Uh, Monkees is in June and Motley Crue is in July. A lot of great concert announcements just today, as a matter of fact. This is Monday. Uh, they announced uh, over at Station Square, White Snake, one of my all-time favorites, will be coming with Mr. Big, another great band featuring two guitarists out of the Pittsburgh area, not only uh, Reb Beach with White Snake, but Paul Gilbert, who was originally from Greensburg. So it'll be great show over there. And then across the river over at Stage AE, not to be outdone, they've announced the addition uh, of not only Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, ZZ Top, and Sticks, they're calling the DVE uh, four-pack. You can get tickets through, I believe, August 4th to all four shows for $68. Again, Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, Sticks, and ZZ Top. Those are four separate shows, but 68 bucks will get you into all four. So I'm going to head over to Promo West Live for that, and you can get uh, information on Whitesnake, where I think I'll be one of those nights. Uh, over at uh, druskyentertainment.com. So I want to thank you for listening, but before we go, I want to include one more in an episode that's been chock full of classic rock. Uh, guitarist uh, by the name of Larry Rhino Reinhardt uh, at one point was in the band Iron Butterfly, who you re- probably remember from Inagata De Vida, which has sold an ungodly number of copies over the years. Uh, it's got a new album out, Rhino and the Posse. So here's a track off of that, and then Eric caught up with him for a pretty in-depth talk. Uh, some great stories if you're a fan of, of bands like the Allman Brothers. It's going to be some great stories in this one. So I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of uh, Eric, and it'll take us to the end of the show today. We want to thank you for sticking in uh, as we go into extra innings, though. Take care. <laughs> Never 
We have Larry Reinho Reinhardt. How are you doing today, Reinho? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Now, today, Larry, we'd like to talk about your uh, musical career, which is a uh, long and illustrious one, of course, and uh, <laughs> all, your uh, your upcoming album and um, whatever else is going on in the in the world of Rhino. So let's just okay. dive right in. Well, um, what got you that. started into music? Um, from the beginning, eh? Yes. Uh, well, uh, I guess I was about 10 years old or so, somewhere in that area. And my dad was a musician. He was uh, into the um, uh, old school country music, uh, you know, like uh, Hank Williams, uh, real old Hank Williams and that, that genre, you know, and, and country from the 40s and early 50s. And he used to have a... Uh, it was a machine they used to make in those days where you made acetates, they call them, which is basically a plastic record, and you would set the, the cutting head, the, the regular arm would set on the record, and would, uh, when you sang or played with a microphone, it would record and make an album for you. I think they used them a lot uh, during the war, and they could send that along to um, their wives or, uh, I mean, their, their husbands or whoever, or send them back to their wives, and they'd have a record to play, and they could hear their real voice. They used to have booths like that. At any rate, I saw my dad doing this, and it was really intriguing. So I started, when he was at work, picking up his guitar and playing on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, first, uh, I mean, and I would try to tune, and I wasn't uh, I wasn't really up on tuning. So it would end up being out of tune a little bit, and he would know that I'd been fiddling with it and really get upset. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so this didn't deter me, however. Uh, I still did it. I, I, uh, I read some of this. Uh, books on music and um, saw the uh, actually how to tune a guitar and so I didn't make that mistake again on uh, leaving it out of tune and but in the end he uh, he got so annoyed with me playing his guitar 
had, uh, he was a watchmaker by trade, but he also had music stores. He had a watchmaking shop, and the rest of the store was uh, records and musical instruments. He was a Fender guitar dealer and a Gibson guitar dealer and uh, Epiphone, everybody. He had wow. Guitar. Yeah. So one day he came home and told me to come out to the car, and I went out to the car, and he brought home, uh, I think it was called an Oahu. It was a three-quarter size electric guitar with an electric amp. And I was uh, just, I can't say blown out because I didn't know that word at that time, but I was overwhelmed, I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's some present. I said, what is that? He said, this is to keep you off my guitar. (laughs) It worked. It's electric, but I don't want you to get too loud with it. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just stayed on it, you know, and I had some, uh, there were two friends of mine that were sons of a, of a reverend at the Baptist church right around the corner from us. And they used to come over and they sang like the Everly Brothers together. They were great. And they, and they wow. both played guitars. So they started teaching me uh, uh, chords. And from there, I kept, I would add stuff and do this and that. And then my dad uh, got the bright idea that he wanted to uh, give, take me to a guy to give me lessons. And I really didn't like that idea. I went, uh, I went for, I don't know, maybe a month or so. And the teacher was just, uh, you know, things like Jingle Bells and Mary. Stuff that's not that interesting. Man. Not interesting at all. I mean, and just boring. And he was boring, basically. I mean, he didn't make it interesting. Sort of and took you through the Mel Bay book and things like that? Not even Mel Bay. Some obscure other stuff. I mean, <laughs> Mel Bay would have been a step up. <laughs> so that didn't work. And finally, after uh, my... Uh, internship at that place, I was better than the teacher, and I told him, I had, you know, I, I, I got to move on. You know, you're not teaching me, I'm teaching you now. Because I would come in and show him things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was learning it from all kinds of people. And uh, in my bio, it, 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 was, it was in there, and I'll just, uh, I'll just kind of paraphrase that. Uh, Dickie went to high school at the same high school I did. Oh, okay. And, uh, but he was he was uh, at the end of high school, and I was just coming into high school. He's a few, well, a couple years older than you. Well, this school was seventh uh, through twelve. Mm-hmm. It was a junior high and high school. Oh, okay. Now they don't have it like that. It's like a middle school, elementary, right. middle school, high school. Sure. Here it was after you did your you did one through six, and then you went right into junior high. Mm-hmm. So at seventh, so when I came in in seventh grade, uh, Dickie's. Uh, this is Dickie Betts we're talking about here, right? Yeah, Dickie Betts, right? He's five years older, or. Uh, or five or six years older than I am. Mm-hmm. So he was at the end of school, and he ended up quitting 
And but in the meantime, I had gone down to the cafeteria because uh, they used to be a uh, they used to play in the cafeteria. Oh. In the, in the mornings before school, mm-hmm. little jam sessions. Oh, that sounds and like fun. I yeah, I would I would listen to him and see what he was doing, and he was really good. And uh, and I was this was in Florida, right? Him and and after he left. Uh, school, uh, I, I I got with a couple other people, and we carry on that tradition. Mm-hmm. And I play in, in, in the cafeteria in the mornings and the afternoons almost all the way through high school until I got into about the 10th grade. Um, and uh, we used to pack the place. Was this in, where where was your high school? Uh, where did South you grow up? High in, in Bradenton, Florida. Oh, okay. Where the pirates practice? Yeah, that's correct. Well, the pirates, uh, yeah, right here in Florida. They got uh, there's where I live now. I'm about uh, two or three miles from their stadium. Oh, okay. Cool. Mhm. So it was all a fun time learning how to do that, and I was a pretty quick learner because that's all I did was play guitar. I mean, I didn't do much homework. I had some girls in school that kind of did my homework for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it it opened up my time, you know, to play. And because um, that's really, I knew what I was going to do with my life from that moment on. I was trying to play guitar, and I didn't see the need and all this other, you know, a lot of it. Uh, I wish I'd have paid more attention, though, because uh, that comes in real handy to have some, you know, to have that knowledge. I ended up learning it just by living. Sure. You know, because I got interested in it afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you're, when you've got free time. And um, so... I graduated, but I had I had so many chances to leave. Uh, one of my good friends, he he came here, and uh, asked in 1964, and uh, he was going to California, and that was my big dream: is to get out of Florida and go to California, where things are happening. Yeah, you know, musically, because everything everything that had we in Florida. Everything we got everything in in the country last. It mm-hmm. seemed, you know, when when it was almost when what was going on was almost over, we we got we got it when it was almost over. So it was old hat, and I wanted to go where the things were were happening and all the big bands were coming from. And is and this how you became was, involved with Iron Butterfly? Uh, well, I'll get there. Okay. Uh, not exactly, but they're in a roundabout way. But he asked me to go, and I and my mother uh, has said absolutely not. Uh, I I didn't get a chance to graduate from school because I had to work. It was a depression, and you're going to graduate and at least have a high school diploma on your sure. pocket. And I said, okay. Well, my friend got out to L.A. And he was in a music store after, and about, well, this is about two weeks after getting there. He was in a music store playing bass. And Arthur Lee uh, came in the store, heard him, and that's, you know who that is, My Little Red Book and all those songs. Yeah. Love. 
yeah, and heard him play and hire him. And he called me up and told me this, and I was I was elated for him, but so uh, angry at the fact that I didn't go. Right, that you were missing out. I was missing out because I was here. I was in in Bradenton. You know, I was when I was in the ninth, tenth, and all through there. I was playing in bands on the weekend in clubs, and I got I got my mother. In those days, there was a the ABC um, liquor uh, control board was was in effect, and you couldn't go in any place unless you were with your parents or you had written permission to work in clubs. Right. So I, I got written permission to work in clubs, so I was playing nightclubs at night on school nights from 9 to 2 in the morning and and getting home and then having to get up at 6 o'clock and go to school. And mm-hmm. as, I, as later on... <clears throat> Excuse me. I was uh, I was playing one club from nine to, uh, to about one, and uh, then at three o'clock I played in a in a after hours club to about seven o'clock. Oh my! And, and that was starting to cause a problem. Sure. Because I would end up going to school with no sleep. Right. But when you're young, yeah, you know, you can do things like that. And you can do things like that when you're older, too, if you have to. Right. Make, makes me tired just thinking was, about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I had so much energy uh, in those days, you know, that I it was like water off a duck's back. And it was what I loved to do. And um, so that's really how I started playing guitar. And it went on from there. And... Uh, and then it goes into another phase, you know, which is when I got, uh, I was playing with um, with Barry Oakley and myself. Uh, we had a, a band, um, I skipped a, a few things, but... Uh, go how did you meet I, Barry? I, how did I, well, that's what I was saying. I, I met him at a concert when he was playing with the Romans, I believe it was. And we got together, and he lived in Siesta Key, which is about 10 miles from him. And we started getting together, and we liked the blues. And uh, we put a band together with a, a, a harmonica player named Tommy Doucette, who played with the Allman Brothers on that Fillmore album. And he mm-hmm. played around with them a lot, a lot of gigs. Very good heart player. And um, we had a local drummer. And... Uh, and we played a lot of clubs. I got a call during this period from Dickie Betts. And he had a band up in uh, Campus St. Pete area uh, called Blues Messengers. And uh, they were going over real well. And he had some uh, a kind of a problem with the bass player and asked me if uh, I could come up and play bass for him. Mm-hmm. Until he figured out what was going on, he didn't. He didn't. He said, "I know you play guitar, and I don't want to lock you into it, but I really don't know what else to do." And um, I said, "Sure." Uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't have a bass, so I, I took my 335 Gibson and uh, strung it up in a lower uh, value and made a bass out of it. Oh my! 
How did that sound? <laughs> it sounded great. What it sounded like was a uh, baritone guitar. Oh, right, sure. You know, they make those anyway. And he used uh, my low E string was a D on the bass. Mm-hmm. Or a G, I forget what I used. I th- it was one or the other. And uh, then I went on up from there, you know, using a... Uh, guitar string that was like an 80 gauge and like that. I think I bought an actual a baritone set of strings and put on it. Is what I think I did. But oh, okay. Uh, I, I broke one one time and had to use a bass string, and I think I had to use a, a G off of it. But uh, it it sounded good. It did the job. I ran a lot of bass on it. It was wiry sounding. Um, but it was good, and uh, I, I went on for about a month, and uh, and I went to Dickie one night after the after our uh, our after our show was finished, and I said, Dickie, you know, um, I really uh, don't want to play bass, uh, and I got a friend that's sitting in and she has the key that is great, and he would fit in perfectly and he's a great guy you'd love him and that way it'd free us up to do some of this twin guitar stuff that we uh that i was thinking about doing mm-hmm. and um he agreed i uh, say try him out he didn't say yeah he just say try him out so i got barry to come up and i put my guitar back to uh, a guitar again <laughs> and <laughs> which is strange because I had to put a new nut on it because I had to carve the other nut out to fit. It took sure. some work, you know. But you know, I was really excited about this because I I knew it was going to be it was going to be a good band when Barry came up and. Oh yeah, he's a heck, he was a heck of a bass player. Yeah, I knew it was going to be good. So when we got up and uh, we played the first night. Uh, Dickie came to me and said, yeah, you think you'll stay? And I said, uh, I believe so. And uh, and I'll ask him, but I'm pretty sure uh, if he liked it, he'll play. Mm-hmm. And Barry agreed. And uh, so we continued uh, like the Blues Messengers. And then one night at the club, um, this fellow come in from Jacksonville, Florida, and he owned a big nightclub up there. And he heard us and was knocked out with what we were playing because we were playing uh, music that nobody else was playing. You know, all the uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Jefferson Airplane and, you know, a lot of Grateful Dead, a lot of uh, avant-garde-style music, not pop. Right. Not the stuff off the radio. And uh, he thought we'd be perfect because he said Jacksonville area was just square. And uh, he wanted to, to knock it on its ear mm-hmm. and thought we would do it. He said, I have I have only one suggestion. Instead of, instead of Blues Messengers, uh, I'd like you to call yourselves, uh, because of the way you look, long hair and beards, and you look like a bunch of prophets. He said, oh, I'd like you to call your band The Second Coming. <laughs> yeah, and um, we agreed to that. You know, it sounded like a pretty good name, and and what's you know at that time as well. That's okay. Blues Messengers, uh, Second Coming, and the money was good. 
and we had free housing up there. He owned a hotel, so we had all these, and it's an older hotel, but it was all these, uh, like from the 30s and 40s style, Humphrey Bogart style hotel. Mm-hmm. You know, and it had a liquor store right right underneath it, so that was perfect. <laughs> I ain't going to beat that. And uh, we came in, and uh, the people came out. It was a little slow at first because we were a new band, but it was all really young people, uh, college age, you know, and uh, and like that. Uh, and not not too many older crowd. We drove those guys right away. I mean, they came in, but they they didn't stay. They, they went right back out. Went right back out, sort of. Yeah, when they realized that this is not the band they they like, but the the young crowd loved us, and they would tell their friends. Pretty soon, six nights a week, the place was packed, and it became really well known. And uh, Neil Young, when he when he came to town, they would come by. Stephen Stills. I mean, the place was like a gathering place for all kinds of musicians that were touring and were in town and wanted to go out. And the only place to go out to hear something or the crap would be the comic club downtown or or the the scene, which is where we play outside of town. So we went all through that. And I was sitting at home thinking, uh, this is going nowhere. I want to go to California. And it just came up that the Almond Brothers were playing in Sarasota. And I went down to see them at the Armory, uh, Sarasota Armory. And uh, we all had a good time. And afterwards, we got together and hoisted a few beers and, you know, talked about how's everything going. They were just, uh, they had just done their first album. And uh, so we all listened to that. And, uh, and they were going back to Macon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you mind if I take get a ride with you in, in your truck there? I, I want to go up and stay in Macon. And, yeah, no problem. Come on, get out of this town. So... I got in the, in the truck with Red Dog, and uh, on we went. Kissed the wife goodbye and said, I don't know if I'll be back. And I went to Macon and uh, got myself. I was living there in a big house with all with, uh, I think I was with Barry. Oh, we all, we all crashed. I think Dwayne had his own place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody else were kind of crashing with each other, you know. Yeah. I think I had one of these super big closets turned into a bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil Walden was uh, uh, had signed me and uh, was about to do some recording. Mm-hmm. And at just about that time, uh, he called me in. And said, I just got a call from my friend in Los Angeles. He was another attorney. Larry Larson was his name. And uh, asked if uh, if there was a guitar available down here that uh, Phil knew about. And he said, yeah, I got one right here. And I was standing in the room. And 
So they they talked about I left the room and for a minute while they talked, and then uh, Phil called me in and said, uh, would you uh, like to go to California? And I said, I've been trying to for 10 years, yeah. <laughs> so and then he told me who the band was, Iron Butterfly, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I say I don't think I fit that music. I'm not really that style, and I don't really like that kind of music. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Uh, but he said you're gonna see six figures the first year on touring alone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I said, well, I guess I could go to like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I could grow to like that. I guess, I guess it'll grow on me. Mm-hmm. But I, I, even if it didn't work out, I was in California. Mm-hmm. That was the main thing. Yeah. And uh, so uh, Ticket came in, and uh, Barry and uh, a couple others took me to the airport there in Atlanta. We had a big party that night before, and everybody was wishing me luck, and I was wishing him luck on the album, and... Uh, carrying on, and we had a good time, and then we limped our way to the airport, you know, really feeling beat up from the night mm-hmm. before. And uh, so that was really my first big jet airliner ride mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And uh, that was interesting. And my uh, hair was really long. I mean, it looked like I... I I came down from the mountain, <laughs> and and uh, when when I uh, the stewardess were all bringing me drinks. At that time, you didn't have to pay for drinks, mm-hmm. so I was uh, getting myself uh, ready for flying. But it was kind of scary my first time, and sure. we hit a lot of rock. We hit some rock weather, and it was a bumpy ride most of the way there. So, you know, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to California. It's just plane will stay in the air. That'd be a hell of a note if I don't get there. <laughs> <laughs> After all this time, I, I, I'm i on my way there, and I die in a plane crash. Yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, Rhino, what, let's talk about your new album, Rhino and the Posse, called Back in the... Or okay. the, new, uh, the new group, uh, Rhino and the Posse, uh, and the album called Back in the Day. Uh, what... Uh, I, I listen to the album, and it's definitely, you know, obviously a lot different than Iron Butterfly and uh, some of the other things you've done. But, uh, you know, um, it's uh, definitely, you know, more along the lines of, like, uh, Southern Rock, but also harkens back to, you know, t- talking about the, the way things were, you know, back when you got your start you know, is, is what I took away from it. But uh, uh, how did you arrive at this type of uh, format and, uh, and the songwriting and, you know, who all's involved and everything, too? Okay. Uh, well... I was in. I did. I was in retirement to start with, uh, and then um, back in 2009, I uh, I was. People came to me and said, "You got to record something. You got to record something." And I had a studio available, and um, I agreed. So I, I sat down and I wrote 12 songs. And uh, put them together, got together a, a good band, and uh, went down. And uh, I got to preface this with: uh, right at this time, I was also told the reason I agreed to do it that I had a year to live. Oh my! Yeah. 
So when I heard that and they were asked me to do the record, I I I didn't just I didn't uh push it off this time. I figured, okay, if I've got a year, uh I'd better get something out because I wanna I wanna leave something. I don't wanna just end in obscurity. Sure. And uh it was just my just the way I am, you know. I mean I don't think anybody really wants to go out and uh, not have anything uh, up-to-date about them, you know. Nope. Like so-and-so's last movie, and you don't want it to be uh, 1999 or something. You know? Right. I wanted it to be fresh. So um, I went at the album. My singer, unfortunately, got uh, some kind of cancerous growth on his nodes and his throat. So he was out. I had no singer now. Oh my. So this this is starting to turn into uh, a nightmare. Sure. And I and I was I'm already getting the basics cut, you know, I'm like a third into the album already. Mm-hmm. And uh so uh, now what am I gonna do? And everybody goes, why don't you just sing it right now? And you wrote them, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but I'm a songwriter singer. I'm not I'm not a lead vocalist type singer, you know. Mm-hmm. And they came up with all these other people that aren't great singers that do it. And I went, well, yeah, well, that doesn't mean I can. You know, it just doesn't work that way. They've got a style and, you know like that but I agreed to go ahead and do it mm-hmm. and they kept saying well maybe you'll find somebody uh, by the time uh, we get to the end and we can just put their vocals on mm-hmm. I said well okay I'll do that and I kept getting worse and then I got a phone call from my doctor about halfway into it and uh, my ammonia level this is all coming from my liver oh I see and my ammonia level had jumped up in my head, where normal is about something like 20, and mine was at 170. Oh, my. So it was pretty much like I was, I could have fell over at any minute. Yeah. So I rushed, I was, this was in Port Charlotte, which is uh, about 70 miles south of where I live. Mm-hmm. So I came home to see the doctor and got some other medicine, and I was having trouble breathing, so I had to do the rest of the album with an oxygen mask on. Oh, my. And a tank. And uh, and still, we had no title for the record yet. And uh, I came up with Rhino's Last Dance uh, because it sure was feeling like it was going to be. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's where the title came for that. And... Uh, we finished it, and we couldn't get distribution, and uh, my vocals kind of caused a real problem with it. And uh, I just said, well, I guess I am going to go ahead and check out and not leave anything as a legacy. Um, so I went into all this treatment to the next year, um, and my liver started to get better. Oh, good. Because the liver will rebuild itself a little if you give it a shot, you know, mm-hmm. and you take medicines, and I was on 
all these flushing medications that uh, gets all the fluid out because my liver was uh, making me uh, catch, uh, retain liquids. Mm-hmm. So I could drink whatever I would intake. In Only a small portion of that was actually leaving my body. Right. And it was, uh, it got bad. But by the time um, the end of the year it came, it was about in the summertime. It had been almost a year later. I, my levels came down, which I just found out two weeks ago. Even after I did this, they were coming down before, but now they're down to just a a little bit higher than normal. Oh, that's great. So uh, that news really made me feel great. And uh, so then I was really hot on getting this album off the ground. But as it turned, before I'll get back to when I was recording it, uh, Mike Dickie Betts had, had announced his retirement. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that maybe as an opportunity to maybe uh, Mike Koch and myself to get back together. We had played in, in a band together before in, in a couple of projects back before uh, he, he was signed on to Dickie Betts. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, and he uh, he agreed and said, it'd be great, let's do it. And I, I, he said, do you have a drummer yet or anything? I said, no. I've got a couple of guys in mind. He said, well, Frankie Lombardi's not doing anything either. So, uh, well, I'll ask him if he'd like to do it. And I said, great. And he said, I could ask Pedro, too, and it'd be the whole band. We've all played together. And I said, wow, that would be fabulous. Mm -hmm, Yeah. uh, You you guys know each other, and I think that would fit great. Mm -hmm. So everybody agreed on that, and then I added uh, Don Bonzi, who worked on the Last Dance album with me, and uh, he uh, does another uh, Guide Star Productions that did our videos. He uh, he helped shoot and edit the videos, and I would direct them and like that. The whole idea of the album because I was uh, listening to classic rock stations, right? And it kept, it was like listening to, uh, the. it was a solid ro- power rotation of the same song. Oh, sure. At the same time, same time of the day, every day. Yep. And Sadly, I that's the state of things today. Yeah, I said, this can't happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this album, and I'm going to write new songs, but I'm not writing them like uh, a song uh, that was written in 1970 because uh, I'm going to write the way I'm writing and feeling now and uh, do a couple of songs that are fitting for the Southern, which is uh, uh, State of Mind, Rock and Roll State of Mind, and Don't Know What to Do. They're kind of, they're a little bit, they got a Southern uh, rock feel to them. Yeah, definitely. The rest of them them to me are rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I just said back in the day to make people it's gonna I'm writing things that may sound familiar but they're but it's brand new coming at you yeah fresh and, fresh approach now how can uh, we uh, get our hands on this album what's the best way to obtain it okay go to the website that would be www.rldrecords.com and um, it'll have uh, Last Dance, it'll have photos of the bio, 
and it'll be when you go to back in the day and you hit that tab and scroll down, it'll have uh, links mm-hmm. that will take you to the hard copy. Uh, now, if you want, if they want to get something uh, like a download, like a lot of people will want to do instead of buying the album, sure. then they could go to iTunes or CD Baby, Amazon, a lot of the downloaders that are out there. We got it on pretty much everything. That's that's so, good. Uh, it's pretty easy. And the same way with Last Dance, it's on there the same way. So. Oh, good. Uh, that's it. The website has it all. It's got where we're going to be playing if we can and all that, and who to call for management, and uh, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I understand you, you... But it's got plenty of information on it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Do you have a tour uh, in the works or uh, in the planning stages for this year? Well, we're working on, we're, we're working on that as we speak. Uh, it's just um, signing off on um, who's going to be uh, driving the ship, you know, as far as management and the booking agent. Uh, there is one booking agency now that's uh, handling the affairs and is working on uh, a tour in Croatia, of all places. Oh, my. Yeah, uh, we we'll want to see how if the government thing is there for traveling there to see if there's going to be any restrictions sure. that would be the problem because it was a war zone I'm not sure how it is now but it seems to be a regular place but uh, I don't know. They Definitely to, important things to, to check out before you embark on a trip like that Well uh, you have to because you have to get a visa before you even go so sure. that's why I'm saying that it's in the stages of going it's uh, can we get these visas to let us go. Mm-hmm. Well, if you stay on this side of the pond, I hope you include uh, Pittsburgh on your tour stop. We would definitely love I to see would. you. Oh, I would love to. I've played Pittsburgh so many times and love the people there. And uh, it's a great city that's always, uh, you know, never really got the due that it's uh, needed. Right. Yeah, I agree with In that. In my opinion, I love the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great place. Well, uh, Rhino, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast, and uh, it was an interesting conversation, definitely, and uh, hopefully uh, you can come to town and we can uh, check you out. (laughs) 